welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, an ongoing conversation with makers, thinkers, and doers, where we ask big questions of the small things. Everybody was born, even if they themselves do not give birth. Um, all of us, this is like one of the few truly shared human experiences, right? Like all of us were born in some shape or form, in some way, all of us were born of another person. And that connection and separation is such an analogy for being alive and for dying too, right? Just that that um, way in which we initially think we're alone and that we're here to learn how to be alone and then realize that we're not alone. <laughs> And then, and 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 that the aloneness and the communityness, um, or the communalness, is is like two sides of the same thing. Welcome back to the third part of this conversation, where we pick up right where we left off and we jump right back in. Enjoy the episode. Okay, I love that you just started talking about how you switched over from drinking alcohol to smoking mm-hmm. cannabis. I want to hear a lot more about that story. It's been in my social circle for a long time, but I, I've never smoked. So I would do it every once in a while, but I wasn't breathing right. And it wasn't doing anything for me. And I just felt bad that I was wasting people's weed. So it wasn't until we were maybe like six months away from legalization. And then I was like, okay, Connie, cause Connie and her husband are our connoisseurs. So um, I was like, okay, Connie, I am ready. I think that you need to educate me on this stuff. And she's like, oh, goody, goody, goody. (laughs) So her husband, Mike, is a crazy good cook. He is crazy good. So they take, he makes like sous vide butters and he makes these beautiful brownies and like Mm. he bakes a whole bunch of stuff. Mm. So, and I was like, okay, well, I don't know how to smoke. So let's start here. So they come over. They, they stay sober because I was nervous about, like, if the kids wake up and what state I was going to be in. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, you guys come over. You guys stay sober. Dose me up. And let's see how this works. Okay. So she gave me an eighth of a cookie. And it was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. We were playing settlers. And I laughed for five hours straight. Like, I... I was sore the next day. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> so and, and are, are you typically a giggly high or is that, has that changed over time? Um, so I've, I've never had a bad experience thus far. So I'm not one that gets paranoid or anything, maybe just naturally personality wise. Like it's never affected me that way before, but I've never giggled as much as that one. Mm. Like I laugh, but literally I had to hide under the table because I couldn't catch my breath. And I was so red in the face. I was like sweating. I was laughing so hard. I haven't even had couch lock yet. So I don't think that I've fully explored my options. But anyway, that was definitely the giggliest I have been. But that was like the beginning and it's been awesome since then. Yeah. Okay. So. I assume you've graduated to more than just one eighth of a cookie. So I haven't actually, so because Koss and I both like to do it at the same time, 
we we haven't fully explored edibles yet mm. because we've kind of gotten the smoking down to a science so we know how long it lasts. Um, we know that we can still go up and take care of the kids if they wake up screaming, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, but Connie and Mike are getting into more awesome, awesome methods of edibles. And he's getting better about like measuring dosage and stuff like that. So nice. I think that I'll go back to edibles, but yeah. I just haven't gotten there yet. But that's what I'm really trying to convince Jen to let us do this year with our crop is like, I was reading some reports about how much gummies have skyrocketed because of mm-hmm. everyone working from home and like just needing something to de-stress. Mm-hmm. I was like, Jen, we need to start like making our own edibles to sell online to people. because For sure. I think people would buy it right now. And I mean, Jen is an amazing cook. So, like she could make some pretty incredible edibles mm-hmm. if she like chose of her own accord that that was something she was going to become passionate about. My problem with a lot of the edibles and like gummies and stuff like that is that I don't know how people can just take one. Like if I <laughs> if I open a bag of gummy bears, I'm going to want to eat the whole bag of gummy bears. Yeah. So like I feel like they would have to dose the entire bag as right. one dose instead of like one portion being one gummy bear. I, I think that's how – don't edibles have a dose rating on them? Some, or maybe that's not the kind of edibles you buy. Cause like, I feel like just like the oils, like you can get it like 50 MGs per milliliter or 600 MGs per milliliter. Like don't they do the same kind of dosing on edibles? I haven't actually bought legal edibles yet. Um, yeah, they've been like handmade edibles. It's entirely possible. And if that's the case, then I will totally eat an entire bag of gummy bears. I would be curious, and this doesn't have to go into the podcast, but since Ajira heard us talk about it, like how I got into cannabis and stuff like that. Do you have anything you want to actually say, Ajira? Oh, man. I don't know. My sister probably won't be pleased for me to be outing her this way. But my sister, my youngest sister is the person who introduced me to this. Me too. Beautiful herb. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I was. I think I was 16 the first time I tried it mm-hmm. or maybe 17 or something like that. And back then I was trying to you know remain in control way more than I am now so I really didn't (laughs) like it it was very um discombobulating Mm -hmm. um but later in life I developed a chronic pain syndrome and um it's one of the few things that gives me some relief from the chronic pain so I've been like an on and off power user for the last I've had this pain syndrome since 2006, so for the last however many years that is. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I think the first time that I did it, like, seriously with somebody who knew what they were talking about kind of thing, Mm -hmm. um, I (laughs) – my ego was in full effect, um, and I really don't – didn't like um, ever not being, like – on the same level as everyone else so you didn't ease into it no so Ah. i don't i don't but i also think personality wise i'm not an easer like i don't Mm. tend to ease into things i tend to just jump in without even checking how deep the water is so um yeah so that was like the first time that i felt all the way out of control and i really didn't like it like i was Mm. dizzy and i had to lie down I did learn that that sugar is a quick way to cut the high, though. So that was cool. 
I was like, give me your sweetest ice cream. <laughs> nice. Or just cause. <laughs> yeah. Or just, you know, a spoonful of honey um, mm. with, with the bottle uh, or jar, whatever. But yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've had varying experiences with it. It's very interesting to think about. And I, I think that it's because I use it for pain management. It's not... It, it doesn't have the same, like, fun connotation that I think it, it mm. can have for people who are not using it that way. Yeah. Um, and then with the decriminalization of it here in the Bay Area, at least it's been really interesting to see, like, all kinds of white business, white business people just popping up with new um, stores. And, of course, <laughs> because I got to bring it back up, um, <laughs> it's not – like, it's, it's very – what's the word interesting is not the right word but infuriating maybe it's infuriating Mm -hmm. that like you know there are all these white people who didn't have you know the same who this as a as an illegal substance did not have the same impact on white people's lives and Mm -hmm. white communities and all that and then now that it's become you know something that everyone can open a gummy store with um there's still way more white people who are able to, you know, get funding for a small business selling, mm-hmm. you know, um, CBD gummies or whatever than there are black people who can do that. Um, and of course, people who are in jail for holding some weed or whatever, they're not being released. Like, no, I thought I thought that was part of it. Um. I think I think some got released, but not nearly all and not nearly enough. Hmm. Yeah. And particularly given COVID, in my mind, I'm just like, mm-hmm. this seems more than inhumane. Oh, for sure. Like to keep people incarcerated when that increases, especially incarcerated for like nonsense, effectively. Um, when that increases their risk of contracting this <laughs> super contagious virus. It's just, yeah, no. Anyway, it's, I mean, ugh, God, part of me was going to be like, you know what? It's just the way it is, but it isn't, it is the way it is, but it doesn't have to stay this way. Exactly. And I, and I love slash hate the fact that we could talk about anything, right? Whether it's smoking marijuana or the Teletubbies and (laughs) we can just take one step and be in a conversation about racist structures and systems of oppression, right? Because that's just how prevalent those racist systems are in our current culture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I think uh, Chelsea touched on this earlier, just speaking to the whole idea of like the idea of dealing with racism or with or confronting privilege for many folks makes, you know, sphincters clench Mm -hmm. at the thought of what they're going to lose. But I think one of the things that I don't hear nearly enough is just an analysis of like what, what it costs white people to maintain this white psychosis Mm -hmm. system, because it's not free to you either. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's not free, but it's also not nearly as costly. Um, no, but it know, does cost you something. It, um, it does, and, and, and I've been having a lot of those conversations just among my white friends, and I feel like that's really the right place to have it because 
there is a level of pain. Well, the, the way I say it in, in my white circles, is I say for us to really begin to get a handle on this, we have to commit suicide on the system that got us to where we are today. And for me, it is that frame of thinking, like literally the life support system that enables my mode of existing in the world, my lifestyle, my levels of stress, my, the way that I vacation, my bank account, all of it, all of those life support systems in my life. Part of my role is to commit suicide on those, right? To say, I no longer want those to be where I get my life from. And so there is a level of pain that goes into that because it is, it is very difficult to consciously choose suicide, right? Um, and so that is a different type of work that needs to be done within the white community. Um, but really like it's, it's the work that needs to happen in the white community without putting any burden or expectation on anyone else until we figure some of it out. Yep. I'm, I'm just, that's all I'm going to say is, yep. <laughs> there you go. Yep. Exactly right. Yep. <laughs> oh, so let's, let's talk more about birth and birthing because Ajira, I have got to be honest. I have been loving your podcast. The oh, Thank Woman. you. It's incredible. Daniela's fantastic. I loved your episode with Brooke. It was mm. brilliant and amazing. And partly so because it's just a beautiful world that exists completely outside of my own world. Right. Mm. And so you give me a window into a new kind of beauty um, when I'm able to hear the world from from you. One thing you say is you talk about, you're like, Hey, let's just, let's just start some fires. And I was like, Oh, I want to hear more about that. <laughs> you're like, I don't think that birth belongs in the hospital. Yeah. I'm, I think one of the things that I encounter continuously is folks reasoning things like this. Um, they say, you know, my vision of an you know, the, my ideal birth, the birth that I really want is one that is, you know, on my terms, one that's really comfortable, one that only involves people that I love or people that I know. Um, and one that is, you know, guaranteed to be safe. And my, for many of us, the belief is that if you give birth in the hospital, then you can somehow have a bit of both. You can have, uh, you know, uh, a safe, you know, at your own pace birth that is guaranteed by the, you know, technology that the hospital has. And, and what I'm saying is that I think it's unfair to you and to your provider to imagine or expect that you can have a home birth in the hospital because you can't. Um, and what many people are describing as their ideal birth. And, you know, I'll, I'll say that there's probably quite a bit of, you know, undue influence thanks to Instagram and Facebook, which are great for normalizing, you know, a lot of the visuals of birth that our generation and maybe a couple generations behind us in, in, you know, more, um, uh, in more westernized, um, you know, uh, 
more urban metropolises, you know, a lot of the birth that we're exposed to tends to be, you know, in the movies, some person, you know, <laughs> a bucket of water falls at their feet and then they start screaming until the baby's out and then they say they're never going to do it again and everybody laughs and, and that's the birth story, right? But so if, if your idea of birth is that and then you go on Instagram or Facebook and you see all these beautiful, you know, natural in quotation marks, home births where people are just like, mm, and then there's the baby and everybody's hugging and smiling and laughing and whatever. It doesn't give you an actual, any more of a real sense of what birth is than the nonsense that they put in the movies because... Birth doesn't look like that. And it doesn't look the same every time. And it doesn't look the same for everyone every time. And um, so when I say that I don't think that birth belongs in the hospital, what I mean is that this idea that the the Ellen labor and delivery ward is equipped to support a like naturally progressing, uninterrupted, uninterfered with process is is unreasonable Mm -hmm. that's not what that space is designed for that's uh you know a department and a hospital whose sole purpose you know from the noblest perspective is to provide healing in the case of injury or illness right and in the least noble um perspective it's a business (laughs) so Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's in the business of making money and so what it has, you know, what you have to think about in order to keep a business going is very different than if you're just at home trying to give birth, trying to wait for it to happen, you know? And I know that, like, people make a big deal about distinguishing it from other bodily functions. And I think the distinction is important. But I also think the resemblance is important. When you go to the bathroom to take a shit, for instance, nobody's timing you. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> Well, your kids are. But. <laughs> your kids are, but, but they're, they're timing you no matter what you're doing. But I mean, like, when you, you know, when you go to the toilet to take a shit, nobody's saying, like, you know, okay, our expectation is that it normally takes 20 minutes. And, you know, checking on you every minute to be like, mm, I don't know, you don't seem like you're making a lot of noise. And I'm wondering if maybe I can give you some, you know, ideas for ways to get things moving. Nobody's coming in and out of the, the bathroom you know, every 30 seconds and being like, hey, how's it going? <laughs> How are you feeling? Do you think things are moving along? Do you want me to have a look and see if some laxatives? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you do you want to try some laxatives? <laughs> Is it really yeah. hurting? Do you want some, you know, there's there's none of that kind of like abridgment or idea that like you need to be coached or guided through it. It's just people leave you to your business and you do what you need to do, whether that's crack open a book, pull up Instagram, or just sit in the dark, you know, I don't know, that's your business. So um, for a lot of birthing people who are not high risk, who don't have any, you know, history of the conditions that would require that the kind of supervision that I'm grateful exists for those particular purposes. Mm -hmm. For most people, they don't need that, you know, and it's not fair to take someone to the hospital and be like, yeah, you're going to have, you know, this chill out, chilled out birth here when everyone in the hospital is basically waiting for something to go wrong so they can save you. Mm-hmm. Um, like I want to save that space for people who, who do have things going wrong, who do need that kind of expertise and support um, to get through it. Right. But I think that 
yeah, I mean, I think I guess the thing I keep coming back to is that it's not it's not like it's unfair on the birthing person and therefore, you know, hospitals are evil and suck and whatever else. I don't think that at all. I'm very grateful that they exist. I'm very grateful that, you know, even at the great cost that that these this information and this knowledge came at I'm grateful that people know enough about how to save someone in some dire situations, mm-hmm. you know, but I don't think that it's fair to, to insist that this is the best way to do it because we have very clear data that it's not. And everywhere else in the world that has, you know, a similar level of technology and money and all of that sort of stuff, this is not how they do it. Because they know that this is not the the most humane way to do it. And it's not even the most profitable way to to do it, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's profitable in the short term. But, you know, I I think that's one of my biggest critiques of capitalism is that it's very short-sighted. I'm going to leave it at that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, capitalism, sure, short-sighted. Holy smokes. (laughs) Yeah, I'd say that the biggest thing... um, I think the biggest mistake that people make as soon as they realize that they're pregnant or they go to see their doctor for the first time is assuming that because you're pregnant, you're sick, Mm -hmm. right? That pregnancy is somehow something that has to be managed so you don't die. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because a lot of, a lot of, if you get into the, the chemicals, the hormones, the actual process that your body has to go through, in order to have a baby, you know, quote unquote, the way that nature intended, um, a lot of the processes and policies and just common practice in hospitals interrupt that so much. Mm -hmm. So if you need it, you need it. And again, the fact that it exists is fantastic. And I will never tell anyone, if that is your choice, that is your choice and please choose it. But yeah, the way Ajira was saying it, that if you want that kind of primal, radical, back to the roots, using your body the way it's supposed to be used, it's really hard to get that in a hospital setting because it's not built for that. Yeah, because there's no there's no profit in the natural system, right? Like you have to make it unnatural to make profit off of it. Well, it's, it's a little different in Canada because um, we're not paying for it. <laughs> like our, our tax dollars are, but like midwifery care and hospital care are both covered, Mm. including home births. Mm. So um, I'm not, I don't actually have numbers to tell you how much more popular home birth is here um, than the hospital, but there might be a a bit more rules around who can have a home birth than who can have a hospital birth. Um, But it's not, the hospital exists for profit, but I would say that, midwifery care doesn't like from what I've seen they are drastically underpaid and they put in way too much work um for what they're getting out of it from the system but uh they the amount of trust that a midwife will put back on you so if you're in the hospital setting even if you want to have a natural birth even if there's no red flags there's nothing that really requires intervention through the birth, you're still kind of treated as a passive vessel towards the birth of your baby. Like it's almost like they have to, they have to do whatever they can to get you to step away from the situation so that they can birth their baby for you. Right. 
So they have all those those tricks and the tips that, you know, are there for a reason when people need them. But in terms of a home birth with a midwife, the there's much more of like, well, how do you feel about this? Like, this is an option you can choose, but, you know, I'm comfortable giving you another 24 hours until we have to make that call, you know? Like, it puts much more of the ownership and the decision-making um, on you and how you're feeling about it as opposed to how doctors and nurses think you're feeling about it. And I think there's another aspect to it, which is that um, in in a, in a birth supported by a midwife, typically, and of course that's different depending on how medicalized the midwife be, the midwife be, <laughs> how medicalized, <laughs> how medicalized the midwife be. No, okay. How medicalized the midwife is because you can have pretty medicalized midwives who are essentially, you know, serving a very clinical purpose in the experience. But mm. the more, the more a midwife, I think, was, you know, is, um, coming from a traditional midwifery model or a, a midwifery practice centered on most indigenous, um, you know, ancestral practices around birth. The model is one that is rooted in, in trust, right? And faith mm-hmm. in the process and also in not being attached to the outcome. And I think that that's a really big thing because mm-hmm. in the hospital, in the, in the hospital, it's fear-based, the expectation yeah. is that something is going to go wrong or even, you know, sometimes that everything that can go wrong will go wrong. And the ex- and also the enemy in the hospital is death. Always. The mm-hmm. enemy is death. So at all costs, almost the 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 mission is to avoid death. Right. And and once and even when death, <laughs> when death is not vanquished, when somebody dies, there's no real space for you to integrate that, for you to cope with that or come to terms with it or to engage with it in some way that would actually move you forward, right? Mm-hmm. It's always like, just push it aside, move forward, look on the bright side or whatever. And the thing about those ideas is that that doesn't actually help you move forward. That keeps you stuck because birth and death are so intrinsically connected. Like they're, they're the two sides of the same coin. And I think that it's a mistake um, when we don't support our clients to engage with that at some, in, in some way on some level, you know? And I think that part of what many midwives do when they ask you to, to be accountable for the choices that, you, that you're making is they're inviting you to step into that realm to choose how you want to engage with source. And what I mean by that, you know, here is my phrase again. I love this phrase, but (laughs) it's just that, that thing, right. Where it's like, it's like source is asking you a question and you can answer how you want. And sometimes you ask source a question when you, when you start saying, for example, that you really want to have a baby or that you really don't want to have a baby, um, that's engaging with source, right? Because you're telling the universe your, what you want. You're stating your intention, your, your desire to whoever it is that you believe in. And I think that um, that, that conversation is important. And I think that um, it's to our own cost that we don't have the space to engage with that th- more thoughtfully and with like, with more space, you know, with more spaciousness around it to kind of get really into the juicy stuff of like, what does this mean? 
you know, what does it mean for me moving forward about who I am, about who I'm not, about who I want to be. And I think that one of the things that I see really clearly is that when a birthing person is able to engage fully with the birthing experience, then that makes that like that impact is huge as far as their their ability to trust themselves as parents moving forward. The confidence. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's not about like, oh, they know everything. They don't need anybody. It's like they just get really clear about like, you know what? Even if I don't know the answer, I can find it. I can ask for support. I can ask for help. I'm not alone in this, you know, mm-hmm. and that piece is crucial. Um, but I also think it's not fair for us to demonize the hospital when that's what they're trained to do. <laughs> like, for sure. Yeah. They're, they're like literally trained to expect that something terrible is going to happen and only their training is going to save us, you know, mm-hmm. so like th- they're doing what they're trained for and most of the time they're doing it really well. Um, yeah. I mean, isn't that one of the great shortcomings of, you know, the, the <clears throat> consumer capitalist, you know, industrial complex, right? This idea that like, if a little is good, then a lot is better, right? <laughs> if a little consume <laughs> consumption is good, then a lot of consumption is better. If a yeah. little bit of energy production is good, then a lot of energy production is better. Or even if a little help in the birthing process is good, then a lot of help is better. Exactly. And, well, and, yeah. and, and like that, I mean, capitalism is the best at going further than it needs to in any one thing, right? So like <laughs> hospitals are great for like people with legitimate difficult conditions. Like our daughter is a menu compromised. We're actually mm-hmm. headed down to UCSF tomorrow for some appointments. Mm-hmm. And I am so thankful for these incredibly brilliant people who have spent 30 or 40 years studying very specific parts of the human body. But what happens in the capitalist structure is it says, well, then that, if that's good in some cases, then that should be good for every case. All cases. But the natural system says, actually, there's this very large baseline of minimal interference that is best, right? We see that in our forestry practices. We see that in regenerative ancestral agricultural practices. Mm. We see that in natural economies and natural family structures. Minimal interference leads to pleasurable outcomes the vast majority of the time. But A, you can't control those because by nature you're not interfering very much. And B, you can't predict them because you're not controlling them. And C, if a little bit of control in the emergencies is good, then maybe a lot of control all the time is even better. And that's just not true. And the hospitals are a great example of that, right? Like Mm -hmm. to exactly what you were saying, like birth can be natural, should be natural. And when it's not, I'm so thankful for extreme. Both of our kids actually were born cesarean because both of them had complications. Mm -hmm. So I'm thankful that those structures existed, but we started in, in, in a birthing center. Um, and, and that's the way we wanted to go. Because we had this belief that birth, by and large, for most people, most of the time, can be natural. Um, The other thing I wanted to say or name about um, birthing in the hospital and why I say that I don't think birth belongs there is that, you know, the process of of, you know, being pregnant and then giving birth is huge physically, right? It's not just this emotional, um, 
but physiologically it's <laughs> it's like massive changes you know yeah. you take like 10 months to grow this person and an extra organ um <laughs> which just takes you know plunders your body for resources to give to this little fetus and then you give birth so within a matter of hours compared to the 10 months you spent growing everything within a matter of hours you change it again completely by you know um pushing this baby and this organ out and then suddenly like you your abdominal space is is open and your uterus has you know a wound the size of a dinner plate inside it from where the uterus i mean from where the placenta let go and that that thing has to stop bleeding but your uterus which is been stretched out to accommodate that massive bundle of joy of yours is has to like shrink back to its original size which is like the size of your fist then um your pelvic floor has to recover your abdominal muscles have to kind of re-engage and tighten up again your, your organs or- have to go back in place your organs have to move back <laughs> you have to like regrow fascia to hold things back where they belong you are you know your bleeding takes like six weeks to stop your so it's like your hormones take six weeks to kind of recalibrate mm-hmm. your your breastfeeding relationship or chest feeding relationship with your infant takes about that long to reach like a good old balance of you know demand and and, and um what's the other supply word? and demand supply exactly <laughs> and so there's there's like this entire period which you know is referred to as the fourth trimester and that that period mm-hmm. is not taken into account in the hospital at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, not at all. After you give birth in the hospital, the doctors are literally like, we want to see the baby every five minutes. You will see in six weeks. Yeah, for sure. Despite the fact that you've done this incredibly hard work and you do need support to figure out, like, you know, <laughs> is what you're doing uh okay um are you meeting the baby's needs is the baby's cry mean does the baby's cry mean anything in particular probably just that they need to sleep but Mm -hmm. without that you know support which we would have had um in more ancestral um ancestrally organized communities right we would have been more close-knit where we would have had more access to like human resources just from our neighbors and our friends and cousins and all of that now we're in these like isolated nuclear families where your partner probably has to go work um, and you're home alone with a newborn and you haven't had, you know, any of this modeled to the point where like, you know, that, you know, the baby just needs to eat or be held or be burped or, you know what I mean? It's like none mm-hmm. of that, like organically, like just through osmosis, because it's part of your lived experience, experience is available to you. And so, of course, you know, you need things that people might not have needed in the past. And, of course, it becomes really painful to even talk about things because there's this, like, unnamed competition, right? About, like, who's snapping back. Whoever came up Who with that phrase, Who got their six-pack the back. And, Seriously. Yeah. It's like a serious punch. Curse you, YouTube. (laughs) Curse you, YouTube, indeed. Like, why are you trying to snap back? You don't need to snap back. The person you were before couldn't push out a whole baby. Mm -hmm. You pushed out a whole baby. Can't nobody tell you nothing, you know? So, like, this is, in my opinion, God is level body. So just, Mm -hmm. you know, own it and work it out. And, um, yeah, but the hospital does not have that ability to support you 
through that mm-hmm. postpartum period. The hospital doesn't have, because that's not what they're for. <laughs> yeah, it's not their job. It's not their job. But I mean, they don't even, they can't even like point you towards like, here are some resources, <laughs> which would be nice. Whereas, mm-hmm. for example, with, um, I had a client recently who was really surprised to learn that like postpartum support from the hospital was see you in six weeks. Well, it is surprising. I mean, that should naturally be part of the care. (laughs) You're healing, right? You get checkups for surgery. You get checkups from, like, if you had anything else done at the hospital, there's follow-ups in, like, not even necessarily two weeks. But It's like, here's a newborn baby. Uh, Good luck. Um, Be free. (laughs) Be free. You got it. But, but with I think, midwifery care, you do have that. With midwifery care, mm-hmm. you're seeing your midwife maybe twice a week for the first six weeks. And, you know, depending on, on the midwife, you might even have more care than that. Um, and the midwives vary, but a lot of them, in my experience, are supporting you physiologically as well as emotionally and mentally. They're supporting you with learning, you know, the new baby care skills that, you know, mm-hmm. some of us don't even realize we don't know. They're helping you with, you know, your body in recovery, like supporting you with abdominal strength exercises or, you know, doing body work or advising you on foods to eat that will help Mm -hmm. to nourish you as you recover from this, you know, marathon of literal life giving. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I laugh because it seems kind of ridiculous that we're not like just straight up. I don't know, like revering birthing people. And I think that's part of what's been lost in the last while um, is that we we are not exposed to the nitty gritty, Mm. right? So Mm. when when birth moved into the hospital, when we became more of a medicalized practice, right? All of a sudden, it used to be that you would have a birth and then your mother would be there, your sister would be there, your cousins would be there. Like there was this community around you even giving birth. So by the time it came to you having your baby, you'd probably seen like five, six, 10 births at that point. Like you were, you had that kind of community knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. But as it moved into the hospital, less and less people were allowed to come to your birth until at one point in history, they would put you to sleep and you weren't even at your own birth, right? Yeah. So from that kind of, that's kind of why doulas exist, right? We're people that have, we have that community knowledge. We've seen that many births. We know, not that we've seen every single type of birth because we absolutely have not, but, oh, sorry. My daughter just crashed the party. Um, <laughs> I love you. <laughs> and my son. Okay, can you give me one second, guys? One, one second. second. Um, just one. So as doulas, <laughs> just one. You will literally count down to one. Um <laughs> Just having that person in the space that can basically reassure you that this is the way that birth is supposed to go, right? Like being that calming present that has seen birth before. That's kind of why, you know, doulas came back into vogue because no one else, and that extends to breastfeeding as well, right? Like it used to be that, you know, boobs were uncovered. Everyone saw everyone breastfeed. Like it was just part of, okay, I'm going to leave it there. But <laughs> yes, so 
being exposed to the nitty gritty around birth is something that we've lost as a culture. Yeah. So it comes as a surprise to us when we deal with those. Yeah. And I think now there's also an additional layer that, um, you know, birth companions, birth sisters, birth siblings. Another layer that we now provide is that for many birthing people, their immediate, um, you know, elders have suffered trauma in birth. And so even if they are willing to support you, they may not actually be ideal because they may have so, I mean, look, even in the birth, best of circumstances, birth is so charged. Like everything about those big milestones, those transitional milestones is charged because it brings to mind or to body even, um, memories of experiences that you've had with that, whether it was, you know, your own birth, which we, I think there have been more and more studies that are showing that, you know, that infants do, there is an imprint left, you know, the experience that they have does impact the way that their bodies develop, even if they don't have like that, that recallable memory to be able to describe like, this is what happened, why and how and all that their bodies remember and that impacts the way that they you know interact with the world understandably so because of that i think that it can be helpful to have someone else in the room who doesn't have that charge who actively works to release that charge so that i'm able to be in a birthing space and support someone without becoming enmeshed or entangled with their experience because my job is to be a container to create a space that allows the birthing person to have the experience they're having whatever that experience is absolutely i think one of the big things that people like about having me in the room is that I don't have a vested interest in the choices that they make. So it's my job to support whatever choice you want to make. And it doesn't, I do not reflect my experience or my preferences onto you. And honestly, the longer and longer I'm a doula, the less and less I have preferences. <laughs> like yeah, the more, same. the more ways that I've seen things going, the more open I am to pretty much anything. Pretty much any way the birth is going to go, I I feel comfortable supporting it because there's just so many beautiful ways to have a baby. And and to me, as again as a white man, that is the healing feminine energy that has been trampled out of dominant culture that has so deeply sickened and wounded culture at large. Right, like when we lose that energy of releasing control, maintaining presence, participating with being that releasing energy that you were talking about, Ajira is so beautiful. And, and Chelsea, when you're talking about like moving births into the hospital and removing those familial connections and everything else, it was like, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, it's just yet another way that the male hegemony has seen something that we couldn't control right? And said, <laughs> how can we control it? I know we'll do what the Brits did to Scotland. We'll just strip them of it completely, right? Like we'll just, if, if we can't understand birth, then we'll just completely sterilize birth, which uh -huh. again, just robbed that beautiful feminine energy from the universe of that space and from our cultures and from our own bodies, because now you have a whole generations of men who are born into these sterilized place and they lose connection to their feminine divine being inside of them and they become 
more brutish and <laughs> less compassionate in the world. And we've seen how that turns out over the long term. And so having people stepping into that birth space without the intent to control, but the intent to be present and the, the intent to, Ajir, like you say, meet someone at the veil of transition and walk them through it is such a healing energy in the world. It's so healing, so much healing in the birth room. And to me, even as I'm listening, healing, right? So far beyond the actual birth, the, the role of that spirit of presence can heal so much deep trauma in society and culture. I was just breathing that in because I was thinking that one of the aspects of birth that is um, sometimes not considered is how much this is ceremony. Um, I had a friend whose um, whose business was called birth, whose doula business was called birth, birth a ceremony. And I always thought that was such a perfect name for it because it really is a ceremony. You know, there is, it's so sacred to be in the room when somebody's born, when somebody makes their way into the world. And for me, one of the things, you know, one of the, the like surefire signs that birth is not meant to be in the hospital is that if you go to the hospital, you will very quickly see that for many people in there, it's, there's nothing sacred about it. It's just very, um, it's, it's like, it's one of those ceremonies that's like ordinary and sacred at the same time, you know, because it's like everybody does it. <laughs> everybody was born, even if they themselves do not give birth. Um, all of us, this is like one of the few truly shared human experiences, right? Like all of us were born in some shape or form in some way. All of us were born of another person. And that connection and separation is such an analogy for being alive and for dying too, right? Just that that um, way in which we initially think we're alone and that we're here to learn how to be alone and then realize that we're not alone. <laughs> and then... And, and, and that the aloneness and the communityness um, or the communalness is, is like two sides of the same thing. You know what I mean? I think one of our big mistakes is, is to continue to try and isolate these instances. You know, whether it's um, the idea that birth happens in isolation or that death happens in isolation and not really looking at the context, which is, of course, part of the the greater tapestry, right? Of like, these are the things that impact that brought us to this point. These are the crossroads that could take us here, there, or wherever. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining this ongoing conversation as we seek to unearth meaning in the everyday stuff of life. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at www.ofdustanddivinity.com. Join our Facebook group, which is called Of Dust and Divinity Podcast Community, and engage us on Instagram at Of Dust and Divinity, all one word. Hey, and if this conversation was meaningful to you like it was meaningful to me, 
leave a rating and a review on your favorite streaming platform so that more people just like us can discover this podcast and join the conversation themselves. And don't forget to subscribe. Here is a sneak peek of the next episode. Enjoy. So, for example, there was uh, something scary that happened at our local elementary school. A child brought a weapon to school, and uh, after school that day, it just so happened that we were having Welcome Club, and we were able to unpack how everybody was feeling. Um, School counselors on site were amazing. We have some awesome counselors. But we were able to talk through about feelings um, and how kids felt and uh, making sure that they felt heard and that they knew that this, this is your school too. Like, how are, you, how are you feeling about what happened and what can, we, what can we do to make sure everybody's feeling welcomed here and safe and accepted? A huge thank you to my wife for supporting this passion project. And a great big thank you to Michelle Lim of the Everly Collective for all the brand content, including the name of this podcast and the cover art. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you, for you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now.